Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new series of Empower Ed Podcast where we will be talking to different teachers around the world, asking them about how they are and and really pondering over how the pandemic has been affecting and will continue to affect the education systems around the world. For our first episode for this series, I am with a very good friend of mine, Armand Duchet uh, from Canada, who will be speaking about his own experience. I have co-authored with him along two other more, um, an independent report that we submitted to UNESCO and Education International, and he has been the really the brain behind the report. So let's welcome my friend, Armand Duchet. Hi, Armand. Hi, Jim. How are you? Doing good. It's early in the morning here. Armand, can you tell us something first about yourself? Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, I am a father of three young kids, happily married. Uh, my new COVID-19, we'll figure that one out. <laughs> uh, my kids are... Five years old, three and a half, and one. I've done a couple of Ironmans in my life. And my ultimate goal in life and what gets me out of bed every day is to try to make a difference for a better world for those three kids. All right. So I am getting that in our conversation today. I think your role as a father plays a big part in how you are going to respond to my questions, I think, about COVID-19. I think that would be a, a good perspective, a, a balance of being a parent and same time an educator. Okay. Yes, definitely. All right. So um, for my audience who has been following the podcast, I've been featuring my colleagues in the Global Teacher Prize community and, of course, in the EdTech community specifically with the Apple Distinguished Educator. Arman is, is a member of both communities and I've been so happy to, to know him. Always have a familiar person, uh, a friend in, in those communities. So there. Arman, let's start. In the paper that we have co-written, I think one of the most striking, and, and people have been telling me this, a lot of school leaders actually in the Philippines have gotten the idea of, you know, how important well-being security is in, in, in this kind of pandemic before proceeding to learning. Um, I think the catchphrase in, in our report is Maslow before Bloom. That has been like a key principle that has been being picked up today. Can you explain more about what you mean by Maslow before Bloom? Sure, Jim. So uh, Maslow before Bloom has sort of been my driving philosophy throughout my uh, coaching career, but also throughout my teaching career as well. It's if the basic needs of children are not met, then it's a real struggle for them to, and the basic needs is Maslow's hierarchy, it's a real struggle for them to be able to do Bloom's taxonomy. Now, when the schools are open and you have the physical structure of the school, the school as a social hub has many social programs that go through it, but that are uh, unheralded, uh, not celebrated, or, or not really recognized. Uh, and... Uh, the teacher and that familiar face is oftentimes something that can help at least try to get to the basics of those basic needs for Maslow. Um, when I look at that, uh, I think about, you know, most schools when behaviors are on the rise with kids that are the most vulnerable, it's usually right before 
school closures, so like weekends, uh, vacations, and so on. And the reasons why is because oftentimes these kids don't want to go back to their reality. And uh, with school closures across the board for COVID-19, you take away all those social programs. You take away all those things that they depend on. A lot of families depend on schools for that one more meal a day. Uh, for their child, uh, and then all of a sudden, their their food bill goes skyrocketed, and they can't afford to feed their families. Sometimes those families had five, six, seven kids. Um, so really, it's we need to take care of that first. And as first responders, teachers are first responders in the communication structure mm-hmm. when it comes to emergencies. Uh, Rebecca Winthrop's talked about that at the Brookings Institute, and she's a world expert in it. And to tell you the truth, uh, that's something that in the first couple of days, we really need to uh, understand what's going on within our schools and within our communities to be able to help bring those basic needs to our children so that we can at least continue to bring some sort of schooling to them. Mm -hmm. All right. Are you telling us also that, you know, maybe it's more important to secure first the sense of security, safety, and even the kind of belongingness before proceeding with a very formal transition towards, I don't know, distance learning or online learning? Well, well, definitely. I mean, we're, the school closures right now are because of a pandemic. So, yeah. you know, the realities are going to shift vastly uh, depending on where you are in the wave of this pandemic. If it's New York City or Bergamo, Italy, or... Uh, Wuhan, China, then formal learning is going to take a backseat to grieving, uh, right? Like uh, many people are going to have lost uh, loved ones. Yeah. Uh, and then you have the basic needs as well, which grieving would enter in those basic needs anyway. So, true, you true. know, you've got that situation where is key. And then the second thing is the community that the school brings is part of that, what is being lost and what the kids are grieving, particularly the younger grades. Yeah. You know, K to five where, you know, they're used to going and they're, they're really uh, close with their teacher and that relationship they have. My, my daughter's a kindergartner uh, at one of the schools here. And every time that she talks to her teacher during this break, she completely lights up, right? Like it's yeah. a totally different kid. And uh, that's part of what we're trying to do during these school closures right now. This is not learning, distance learning, normal. This is crisis learning with a distance component to it. Um, So in my eyes, it has uh, all sorts of different uh, complexities. And depending on which context you are, where you are in the world, uh, the formal education will either be a bit more rigorous because the pandemic hasn't hit and you have the capabilities to do Mm -hmm. uh, distance learning properly or... It might be in the midst of a, a major storm, a yeah. major emergency that, you know, your colleagues are dying, uh, your kids are, are struggling with siblings dying or parents dying or grandparents. So, I mean, it, it's it's quite different for everyone. Yeah. Um, your your kid lighting up, lighting up, seeing the face of the teacher. I think that this has been very, very important. Like a lot of teachers go online or make use of, of of video conferences just to check in with their students, and mm-hmm. and and that has been a very very good use of you know we don't use video conferences to deliver lecture, but actually to check in with them. It makes a difference when they see the face yeah. of the teacher and when we see our our students also uh, across 
um, the distance. Picking up on teachers as first responders, why does teacher voice matter in responding to this kind of emergencies like pandemic? for different reasons but i mean the first one is uh government and health officials are obviously particularly the chief medical officer for the nation or for the province or the state uh, is obviously the most important person when it comes to logistics in in this situation and getting the word out so in, in this particular situation we're talking about a pandemic where physical distancing needs to be practiced as quickly as possible now that's not feasible everywhere in the world um and 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 one of the reasons for that is because the the size of the equity gap uh, in many mm-hmm. places around the world so that's a major issue that we'll talk about maybe a bit more later on in this podcast about what needs to happen coming out of this but so if you're looking at first responders and teachers well the communication structure is usually Government, chief medical officer, usually the number one uh, communication officer who spreads out the message as quickly as possible through news media. uh, And and that's usually the way it goes. Could be also social media. Mm -hmm. Well, when it comes to practicing physical distancing as quickly as possible, a lot of our communities might not be looking at news media or following it on social media as well. Not everybody has access to bandwidth. Not everybody has access to technology uh, or radio for that matter. So when you're looking at it from that perspective, who has the closest relationships within the communities? Well, it's actually the teachers that can spread out that information very quickly. And the reason for that is because they have a relationship with their kids. And by calling straight to the kids and letting them know what's going on, and then they can communicate that with their parents or letting the parents know, depending on the situation, then you can disseminate the information rather quickly and be practicing physical distancing a lot quicker than you would um, in a normal setting. So it's one of those communication rules where you wanna get that information as quickly possible throughout every network that you can with the same strong message. It needs to be a unified voice. So when you're looking at teachers and first responders in the communication structure, that's something that can happen, particularly when teachers are in a very professional setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that's not the same. That's not the case everywhere in the world. So yeah. you have to you have to decide what you're going to do. The second thing is is that when you're doing that and you're sending out that information, it's also a, an opportunity to get instant feedback on what's happening in many of our households in our communities so you can have a quick survey about you know are you all right for basic uh basic food are you all right for shelter are you all right for mental health uh um mental health help or so on and so forth right so it's something that uh i really believe in that teachers are uh first responders in terms of the communication structure in particular yeah um, i like your last point and using teachers can uh, relationship just even the teacher's connection to the kids to really you know get a survey of how the community is doing in the time of the pandemic i mean that's a very very good source of data for for the government or for any local government to look into a lot of things to be learned right now, Armand, and the paper that we have written gives uh, some recommendations. In your own perspective also, how should government leaders, not just in the education agency anymore or the education department bureau or maybe in the bigger perspective of, of governance, 
what could be the effect of the pandemic and the current education systems right now? Well, the first thing is, um, I, I think when you respond to it, the first thing that you really need to think about is what kind of communication, what kind of schedule, and what kind of communication are you going to put out as a school? Uh, and it's in, it's extremely important that it's based school per school, not not a centralized decision when it when it's capable so every context is different uh, if you're in a country that uh, the centralized bureau is very much the professional bureau and they go they're going to disseminate the curriculum by television or radio because that's what uh, most of their students have and they don't have access to bandwidth then that makes total sense But if you're in a country where uh, you know you do have access to bandwidth and it's a it's a small measure to be able to bridge that gap, or maybe have bandwidth and online learning for one part of the component, and then uh, maybe television for the other component, then you really need to think about how you're going to schedule your day and how mm -hmm. are you going to uh, communicate with these families. And the reason why I'm saying that is because. You need to put yourself in the family's shoes and in the student's shoes. It's not about the curriculum anymore. Yeah. It's about being able to personalize it to these families. And everybody's got a vastly different context. You could have single parent working front lines as an essential worker in a grocery store. You could have both parents, essential workers at a, at a uh, hospital yeah. that can't come home and the caregiver is an elderly person that's scared for their, uh, their life. You could have somebody that just lost their job, laid off, worried about paying rent. Um, you could have, uh, you know, seven or eight kids in the same household with one device having to figure out who uses it when, right? Yes. So we're talking about the rigor of formal education and, and I hear this around the world. Oh yes, we are, we're keeping the rigor and they're doing it and so on behind the scenes. I'm not so sure they're listening to the feedback of what's actually being said in their community, because unless you're in a very affluent community that you have multiple devices and everybody can sort of be independent, yeah. which that happens around the world, right? We, we do have those and yeah. you do have, countries that have strong social programs that could pivot really quickly like Uruguay and uh, Finland yeah. uh, for example uh, and had access to uh, devices bandwidth for the ones that didn't have it within their communities but the reality is is that you still need to think about okay what do we want the learning experience to be like mm -hmm. do we want it to be traditional lecture base synchronous six towers in front of the computer Yeah. which I know both of us would say, heck no. <laughs> yes. Uh, right? Like, this is an opportunity also for improving pedagogical practice and really thinking about what's the experience you want the child to know? How can you personalize it to them in this situation? And how can you make it asynchronous and really give them a love of lifelong learning? Yeah. So when it, when it comes to that, that's something that I really think. And the second thing is when that's the schedule. So, You know, high school, it might be if you have five classes a day, usually maybe it's five mini classes in the morning, half an hour each recorded so that the people that can't be on it, maybe there's some of the high school students that are essential workers, yeah. then they can go on it later on in the day and take advantage of it. That could be one way of doing it. It could be a check-in in an elementary school, a, a talking circle in the morning, 10, 15 minutes, show and tell, make sure everybody have a sing-along, whatever. 
but it's a check-in and then the rest of the day becomes, okay, here's your top five things to do today, starting with this, this, and this. Very uh, self-explanatory, three points, uh, three to five points. This is what the parent needs to do to be able to set it up. Don't set them up on, here are resources that you can go take a look at. Parents don't have time for that. You really need to simplify it, right? So I, I think for elementary school, that could be a way to go. Uh, but it's unified, right? So that you don't have one teacher doing a three-hour course uh, because now they have the time to do it, and then the other teachers are working around that schedule, and students need to figure out which class to go to because they, they're one over top of the other. Uh, so it's something that you really need to figure out. I think that's the first and foremost thing is the schedule and the timing and what kind of experience you want for your for your students. that makes sense, Jim? Yeah, yeah. Um what I really appreciate right now, Armand, is I think it's because you have a pers- the perspective of a parent with young kids. At the same time, you're also a teacher, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I I do remember talking to one of my school leaders back here in the Philippines, and you know, the idea of distance learning or online learning is not homeschooling, something like that. It's 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 in our paper. It's really because you know the tendency I think for most of us teachers is just to simply think that you know since everyone's quarantined parents are at home they we can take advantage of it i think that's a very very that's a misconception for uh for a homeschool partnership like what you've me- yeah like what you've mentioned just dumping resources i think that's really not a very good way of of you know, pushing the idea of hope, homeschool partnership, just basically throwing everything to the parents. And that's what I appreciate with your thoughts right now. It, it really is. It, you're completely right, Jim. This is not homeschooling by any stretch. Homeschooling, you usually have time to prepare. Yeah. It's usually for some sort of reason, unless it's, unless it's uh, health related, which then you don't have really time to prepare, but you usually have access to tutors that are going to come around and so on. Yeah. This, this is not homeschooling by any stretch. And and parents can't just flip the stri- switch and become teachers overnight. True. You know, teachers are professionals. They have teaching standards. We go to university, have bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a whole process in designing the learning experience that you don't have time to disseminate to parents and, and to explain that to parents as you're sending this out. You really need to lesson plan as if you were lesson planning for a five-year-old. Yeah. And it's not because the parents can't understand the more complex lesson plan. It's not that. Is you want to simplify it for them because parents have other things to do. You know, they have cleaning of the house. They have uh, feeding the kids. They have a lot of them are working from home. Some of them are working in very stressful environments trying to keep their businesses alive. Yeah. Some of them are essential workers. They might only have two minutes. So I completely agree with you. It's not homeschooling at all. Uh, it's vastly different. All right. Uh, We're now in the last part of our discussion or interview with Armand. Armand, anything? Um, Key points or maybe just last thoughts at this time of of the pandemic? Uh, Yeah. I'm thinking a lot right now about what happened, what what we should be thinking about right now. And uh, the first thing is, is that whatever we're doing at the moment for schooling, this is about as best as it's going to get in your situation, wherever you are in the world, it might get a bit better. If the pandemic lasts longer then yeah, there's going to be a lot of professional development and we'll be able to get stuff online. 
But if you start a new school year or a new semester with new students and you're starting it online, it's going to be vastly different. So I'm thinking about what are the bridge gap measures when you get back? What type of investment? Because I'm very fearful of austerity measures coming out of COVID-19, particularly targeting education because the talk up to COVID-19 in education was that uh, it was struggling, it was broken, so on and so forth. But as we realized with COVID-19, we removed the school structure and now all of a sudden we're realizing what schools were doing all over the world in oftentimes porous uh, environments uh, without the funding necessary, pulling off really miracles. So what I'm afraid of is that austerity measures are going to come into play and then one government's going to decide, you know what, let's do distance learning full time because it's going to cost us a lot less. Instead of really looking at why this was such a big issue, it's because education plays a real key part and those schools play a real key part. So some of the things that I'm thinking about when we go back is that one, we need true investments to uh get rid of this equity gap when it comes to children it's absolutely inexcusable for countries around the world to not have social programs to protect their kids and give them a fighting chance i know that not every country has the same opportunity or the same amount of money to be able to make that happen but i believe that it's inexcusable when you have the top one ten percent that makes so much money and that there's there's this illusion of philanthropy, but then we have so many kids around the world that can't even get to school with basic needs met. Uh, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. So that's the first thing is social programs need to come into play to give these kids a fighting chance when they get into school. And then if that happens, then teachers now have the capacity to be able to push them forward and actually give them a shot, right? Yeah. And, you know, I look at the U.S. and, uh, you know, prisoners get three warm meals a day. But oh, then you have yeah. kids that are starving in, in many areas. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. So that would be one. And then in terms of learning, I think we need to step away from these miracle pedagogies and belief that ed tech is going to be the way of the future in terms of personalizing the learning for the kids I think we're realizing that that's not the case. The teacher is extremely important and the student needs to be at the center of the education. Technology needs to be enhanced by great pedagogy. So Mm -hmm. great pedagogy will enhance the learning with the right tool, but that not every tool out there is, is useful. Um, And then we build the capacity to have a real virtual, a blended learning approach where the virtual classroom and the in-classroom is together, but with a balance of mental health, social, emotional learning, competencies, a real whole child approach, which yeah. up to this point has been re- really standardized testing that has put a pressure on the system for us not to be able to do so. So hopefully we're going to walk out of this with sort of a, as a formative assessment for education in some ways, and that we're going to reassess our values and, and how we do things, because uh, otherwise I think we're going down a dark path. All right. Thank you so much, Arman, for giving time for our interview. And I wish you and your family, your community, good health and safety at this time. Thank you, Jim. Same to you and your family and to all teachers in the Philippines. So thank you, everyone, for listening. 